Let me start with uh, some questions. Uh, just think about this in your own mind as I ask them. I want to present to you a series of statements, one from a musician, one from a famous person, maybe some you hear in the public sphere. And just think about for a moment, what do these statements have in common? Like, how are they similar? And I'll give you a hint. It's not in their content. It's in their form. So Oscar Wilde, I'll start with Oscar Wilde. He said, I can resist anything but temptation. In common speech, you might hear people say, less is more. You too came out with a famous song many years ago. And there's a statement in it that says, I can't live with or without you. And then perhaps you've overheard people say things to this effect. Nobody goes to the mall anymore. It's too crowded. What is it that these four statements have in common? They all are examples of a paradox. A paradox is something that you know is true. You're like, yeah, I get that. But it seems contradictory. It doesn't seem to make sense the way it's framed up, but you know it's true. Well, in the word of God, we also encounter paradoxes. Truths that seem to be contradictory, but that are true. And many of these truths are ones that we receive once we enter into relationship with Christ. We actually experience several paradoxes in our own faith journeys. And an unbeliever may say, I, I don't know about that. That doesn't make sense. That seems to be contradictory. We're like, well, we know. It does seem contradictory, but it's true. It's a paradox. And here is one biblical paradox, which is going to arise from our preaching text today. And it's this, you're actually stronger when you're weaker. You're actually stronger when you're weaker. The Bible demonstrates that God actually uses our own fragility, our own brokenness, our own weakness, our own susceptibility to sin, our own failure to resist temptation, our own returning to the old ways that we've renounced to make us strong. God uses the fragility of his obedient servants to put the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. It's a paradox, but it's true. And if you have walked with Jesus Christ for a little while now, you will know it's true. And this is what encourages us when we feel inadequate. So perhaps... And I would imagine there's at least a handful of people in each of these categories. Perhaps you're here today and you're feeling kind of overwhelmed. You know, life is just kind of getting ahead of you. You're looking at what's taking place in the world around and you're acutely aware of your own weakness. And maybe your response to that is, is you're kind of depressed. You feel a certain sense of lingering despair. Or your life is marked by anxiety. You're stressed out. Or you feel like you're, you're out of time or you're, you're incompetent to really accomplish what you have been assigned in life or accomplish what God especially has assigned to you. Maybe you're living in shame. You're aware of your own failures. I've experienced all of these things multiple times at different junctures of my life. I become aware of how weak and fallible I am 
how frail I am. Now, if you look to the person to your right or left, there's a 50-50 chance you're stronger than them. We often compare ourselves to others. Well, I, I'm, I'm pretty strong, I'm pretty healthy, I'm pretty whatever. And that makes us feel good. But in our heart of hearts, when we're by ourselves and there's no one sitting on our right or left, we know how fragile and weak we are. And folks, if you're going to be honest, you should be honest in church. So own up to this. We are very weak and fragile beings. But the Bible teaches us that the power and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ requires weakness to thrive. Christ did not call other Christs to follow him. The Messiah did not identify other Messiahs to follow him. God did not invite other gods to follow him. The Messiah, Christ, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and living God, invited broken, fragile, weak failures to follow him. And rather than taking that in sort of some depressive man, I... Oh, that's not very encouraging. This, this message, if you, if you really understand it, let it sink deep into your mind and affect the fiber of your being, will actually lift you and encourage you. How so? Let's get into the text, and we'll just sort of go through it bit by bit, bite by bite, and we'll try to digest it as we go. So here's the first spoonful for you. Here's the first truth flowing out of verse 7. And that is that our weakness highlights his power. The verse I'm about to read for you, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, is, has been the subject of songs and poems. And I think the reason why some verses like this just tend to jump off the page at so many of us is because they're so raw. They're so honest. And we don't get a lot of honesty in the world. This one's just so honest. Here's what it says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is the life of Christ. It, jars of clay is a reference to humanity. We are fragile. We are literally made of the clay. And we are vulnerable and susceptible to breakage. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why do we have it? To show, here's the purpose, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's in your weakness that you are forced to acknowledge that it's God working in you. So if the equation was 50% of the time I can be righteous by myself and 50% of the time I need God's strength to be righteous, then I would be able to take credit for it 50% of the time. But because 100% of the time my natural bent is to disobey, is to self-govern, is to be autonomous, meaning self-ruled. That's my bent. And I fail even at meeting my own standards. Then all the credit goes to God when I have victories, when I'm charitable, when I'm loving, when I'm sacrificial, when I have a Godward focus. I don't get to take the credit for it. Now this verse reminds us that we are embodied beings. We are referred to here as jars of clay. Now, in the scriptures, in Christian theology, 
There have been attempts since the first century to teach people that your body is insignificant to who you are. Dualism taught that. A form of early Gnosticism taught that. That it's just the spiritual that matters. God is only interested in redeeming your, your spirituality. Your body is just this carcass that you live in. It's not significant. It's not important. This is not, this is not biblical theology. The Bible stresses the importance of the body. We are embodied beings. We are body, soul, and spirit. And we hope in the future, not just to have our souls and spirits fully redeemed and with the Lord, but we look forward to a bodily resurrection. The Christian vision is not to be some disembodied spirit being plucking on a harp on some puffy white cloud for all of eternity. We will be embodied beings. But in this life, our bodies are fragile. They're not yet redeemed. They're not yet restored. They're not yet made new. We are susceptible to breakage. So if you had a, jar, a bowl of clay, for example, or a, a, a jug made of clay, and you took care of it, it could last for a long, 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 long time. I have a, a clay bowl in my office that's about three to 4,000 years old. It was dug up in Jericho pre-conquest. So this is before the people of Israel crossed from the plains of Moab into the promised land and took Jericho. It's a Canaanite bowl. Now it has been broken. It's been glued back together. But suppose that it had never been broken. A clay bowl could last for a long, 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 long time. But at any moment, it could break. It just takes one person to drop it. And it's gonzo. And it's the same with hum human beings. Some people live for a long, long time. You hear people getting to 100 years of age, like, wow, that's a long, long time. And other people, unfortunately, die in their teen years or their 20s or right after birth or in the womb. We're all made of clay, and some clay bowls last longer than others, but at the end of the day, all clay bowls break. Every one of us is like a jar of clay. Here we are, we're still put together, we're still breathing oxygen, but we're not going to last forever. And as we progress through life, both our age and as we progress in our walk with Christ, our spiritual condition reminds us of our fragility. So what I find interesting and my humanness discouraging but spiritually uplifting is that the longer I serve Christ, the less and less and less and less impressed with myself I am. And the older I get, the more I realize dying is not theoretical. We are all in the process of dying. That's the reality of the human condition. We are clay bowls. And eventually we will break because we've all, we all have a critical flaw. And the critical flaw is sin. And yet into this, Christ has poured a treasure. And the treasure is not something external to Christ. It is Christ himself. The spirit of Christ lives within the people of God. Just take a minute to think about that. It's kind of like one of those thoughts. It's kind of like thinking about eternity. You think about it, you think about it, you try to understand 
and you feel like your brain's kind of like maxing out inside of your skull. It just, I just can't, okay, I don't fully understand that. It's a fascinating thing to think that the spirit of a living Christ dwells within clay pots, but he does. Not sought, but graciously received as a gift from God, we have a treasure that is more valuable than anything else. And those of you that have been Christians for a little while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Through the eyes of informed faith, there are many things in life you appreciate. And there's many things in life to appreciate. I love my wife. She's like one of the dearest, sweetest people I've ever met. I love the girl to death. I love my children. I would give my life for them. I love being able to pastor and shepherd God's people. I love my house. I love nature. There's many things I love. But none of these things, none of these things even begin to compare to the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. The treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just our number one. He's on a list unto himself. We have this treasure of Christ's presence in us. And the paradox of faith is that clay pots have the risen Savior living inside of them. In spite of the fact that we are brittle, we're friable, we are fragile, we're easily broken, that treasure, when he manifests himself in power, and enables us to overcome temptation or enables us to have hope when everything literally seems hopeless. Enables us to worship at a funeral in the presence of someone we desperately love that we've lost. Who empowers us to stay true to Christ when a relationship ends that we have deeply valued. This is the treasure of the power of Christ working in us. And so, we do not permit ourselves to take credit for any of our spiritual victories. By nature, we will make the wrong decision. And even if other people look at us and say, you made the right decision, deep down in the inner recesses of our heart, it will be sinfully motivated. This is why the prophet tells us that even our Good works are like filthy rags. You don't get to take credit even for your charitable deeds apart from Christ because somewhere down deep inside of you, even the good we do outside of Christ is motivated by some prideful desire or self-protective mechanism or some thirst to be recognized. It's rooted in sin. But through Christ, we have this treasure. Now, if you think about this, it's really an amazing thing that here we are as human beings, and science tells us we are mammals. Fine, we're mammals. We're warm-blooded. We, we have some similar characteristics, some of you more than others, to monkeys, to orangutans, to gorillas. We have some similarities to other Mammals as well, in terms of our internal systems. Pigs are sometimes used for organ donation on human beings. Who would have thought it? We, have some, we, we understand we're, we're part of creation. 
and we're mammals. And therefore, there's some similarities between us and, and other mammals. But what is interesting about human beings is we really are in a category all by ourselves. Look what we can build. We can put men on the moon. We can reason and think through complex mathematical equations. We can create sculptures and great works of art. We can love and hate and commit ourselves to others. And we are moral beings. And we know we're moral beings. Even atheists know that we're moral, moral beings because we do not apply the same standards to the animal world that we apply to humanity. Nobody looks at a lion taking down a zebra and says, murder, call the cops. Nobody does that. We make National Geographic documentaries out of them, put them on television. Everyone fascinatingly watches them. We allow animals to kill each other. And we do not criticize the moral behavior because there isn't moral behavior of animals. We don't accuse animals of racism. We don't accuse animals of murder. When a cheetah is sneaking up on a gazelle, we don't accuse it of deceit. We are in a category all by ourselves, even though we're mammals. Now, Darwin, as he thought through this anomaly in creation, taught that we were just more evolved. Well, more evolved would be like, okay, we got an A+, and all the other animals still are at a D-. minus. Like, they do things, but we do them better. But that's, that's totally inadequate. We do things and think things and feel things and expect things of one another that are not even on the same plane in any way, shape, or form as animal. We are in a category unto ourselves. And this squares with the biblical accounts of creation, which tell us that we are made in the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei. We are made in the image and likeness of the king. Yes, we are mammals, but we are made in the image and likeness of the king. Yes, we are part of the created order. Yes, we are made of clay, but we are image bearers. What makes us different is that God has created us different. God enters into relationship with us and God is in the process of redeeming us. He's not redeeming drafts. The, the eternal son did not come to die for grasshoppers. He came to die for human beings. He did not manifest himself as a monkey. He manifested himself as a man because the eternal God knows there's something about us that is unique and distinct from the rest of creation. And while they deny it, the rest of secular humanity experientially knows that's true in their treatment of the rest of creation vis-a-vis -vis their treatment of other human beings. So we are weak. We are made of clay. We are created but God has sent his son to live in us. And the spirit of Christ then equips us to live for him. I think this is a blessed thing. Our weakness, rather than making us fearful and afraid, 
actually creates space and room for Jesus to live large inside of us. So instead of compensating for your weakness by trying to hype yourself up into moral perfection, get a little more religious, or ignore your moral imperfection, when we cling to the life of Christ, again, it's in his strength that we become strong. It's in our weakness that he becomes strong. It's in that place of knowing that we can't do it, we can't accomplish it, we can't live up to it, that the spirit of a living Christ takes hold of us in mighty ways. Secondly, his power then, his life then empowers us in despair and death. You think about the world that we live in, maybe some of you are feeling a lot of despair right now. You know, if despair was measured on a thermometer, you feel like you've overheated. There's a lot of despair in your life, a lot of death, a lot of doubt, a lot of fear. It's natural. Where do you go for help? If you can relate to that, you'll be able to relate to the statement we have here, but also if you're a Christian, you'll be able to relate to the hope that's laced throughout this second passage in verses 8 to 12. Here's what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed. Are you perplexed at times? I get, I get perplexed a lot. But not driven to despair, persecuted. We've experienced some of that, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? How is that possible? Check it out. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We're always carrying it. We're always reminded of it. We're always treasuring it. We're always valuing it. We're always preaching it and worshiping out of it. The death of Christ is central to the Christian message. And it's central because that's what enables the life of Christ to be manifested in our bodies. Not the self-help, you're awesome, you're incredible, pat yourself on the back, false gospel, which does not allow the life of Christ to loom large. But the message of the cross is that, yeah, you and I are weak, we're fragile, we're vulnerable, we succumb to temptation, we shame ourselves, we do not measure up to our own standards and ideals. We carry about the reality of our own death, but in the death of Christ, we also inherit the life of Christ. Verse 11 For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but also life. Hey, folks, times are tough. And we feel it in our bones, the hostility directed towards basic categories of truth moral people, the church of Jesus Christ is becoming less and less and less hidden and more and more and more obvious. And it's not the first time this has happened. Even in the New Testament world, this is not the first time the people of God have cried out to God for strength and help. I was reading Psalm 59 the other night and I was just encouraged by that Psalm. It starts off this way, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. 
Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. And the psalmist then goes on to speak of the deliverance of God. Folks, the people of God throughout history have had hard times. And it comes from without, and it comes from within, and it comes from around. It's tough being a faithful follower of Christ. And unless you've acclimatized to the culture around you, you are very well aware of the pending persecution that will come upon God's people in increasing measure very, very soon. Very soon. Not three lifetimes from now, but very, very soon unless there's radical change in our culture. And it's kind of a bummer to think about that. These are dangerous days for the believer. We are on the cusp. We are on the brink. The the table's being set. The culture's been twisted up. The laws are, are on the books. They're about to be passed where there will be increased affliction and persecution. By the way, we're going to cover this topic further at Coram Dale. But I'm just telling you what you already know, I think. It's tough being a believer. And in that, there's this sense of death. Now we, not only is the world around us dangerous, but we know how dangerous we are to ourselves. Like, I'm going to go live for the Lord. And then we see, hear, do something. And man, I failed. I don't want anybody to know. We are aware of our own weakness. We're always dying. But when we come to terms with the gospel, we identify ourselves with the death of Christ and also the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this state of admitting, yeah, we're dying, that the power of Christ refuels us. I, I, I suspect too, that when the writer is talking about caring about the death of Christ daily, that he's probably got in his mind the ordinances, what we call the ordinances, notably baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, if you think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, while baptism takes place at conversion, and the Lord's Supper is a perpetual reminder, really in some respects, they both serve a similar purpose. Both of them communicate this idea of life and death, life and death. So in our baptism, we identify with the death of Christ by being immersed in water, and we are resurrected in water, a sign of cleanliness and purity, as a sign of in, in, in his death, as we identify with his death, we also receive his life. And in the Lord's Supper, we do the same thing. We take juice, we take bread, symbols of his blood, symbols of his body into our own bodies to identify with him. Now from secular eyes, and if you've been raised in church, maybe you've never thought about this, but those are rather weird things to do. So if you had kids, you know, kids play games. If you, if you came home, parents with little kids, and a couple of your kids had built a little... Uh, a little crypt or a little casket or something like that. And one was like shoving the other into it. And you walked up and said, what are you doing? Well, I'm, we're pretending to be dead. I'm pretending to bury my sibling. You'd be like, what in the world? Let's call the shrink. Like something's not right here. Or, you know, if you came home and, you know, your kids had food on the counter arranged in little cups. You're like, what do you know? We're pretending to drink blood. We're pretending to eat dead people. You're like, what on earth? Like something's not right here. So th th the reason for that is it's weird 
to celebrate death. It's weird to take things into your body as if you're cannibalizing someone. That's weird. But the Christian message is a paradox in that as we identify with the death of Christ, we do it. We, we go into the tank or into the river, the baptismal waters, because we, are, we know that in his death there is life. We drink of his body and blood symbolically because we know that in his dying there is life. So we, we carry about the death of Christ. It's part of our faith so that we might have access to his life. It's part of our identity. And, and this is where the false gospel says, no, it's, we're trying to moralize people or we're trying to just you know, Christianize the world or something like that. No, it's in the, the work of Christ that we find hope and freedom. So when we're at funerals, we sometimes preach from 1 Corinthians 15, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? We, we taunt death, we challenge death because we know it has not won and it will not win. We could apply the same statements to despair. Where, O oh, despair, is your victory? Where, O oh, depression, is your win? These things, while we are tempted to succumb to them and vulnerable to them, have no power over us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can thank him for that. His victory is our victory. In verse 13, the Bible says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. Now he goes back and he just grabs a little slice of scripture from Psalm 116 verse 10, where the writer is calling upon God or has called upon God to rescue him from physical illness. I believed and so I spoke. So he just grabs that little snippet to build his argument. He goes on to say, we also believe and so we also speak, meaning that we declare things to be true because we believe them to be true and they've benefited us. What are these things? Look at verse 14 and 15. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's a hope verse. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What's the foundational doctrine that this statement is built on? You'll know that in Christian doctrine, there are core doctrines. We could call them cardinal verities or fundamentals of the faith or matters of orthodoxy. These would be the things that like, if you don't believe them, you have no business calling yourself a Christian. And these are the things that you must believe because they're somehow tied to eternal life. So there's going to be nobody in heaven that denies the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's going to be nobody in heaven that denies the virgin birth of Christ. These are core doctrines. Now, other things matter. Everything matters if God spoke it. But they're not necessarily, well, if you get this one wrong, you have differences of opinion between Christians or churches, you're not going to go to heaven. These are distinctives or lesser matters. But the core issues are core to the Christian faith. And the, the doctrine here that is being referred to is the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection is core, the resurrection of Christ and your pending resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. We're just trying to be moral for 70 years and then we're gone and we disappear. 
The doctrine of the resurrection is our hope, knowing, verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. In his resurrection is ours. If you want to know your future, you just have to look back to Jesus' past, and now you know your future. Your future is connected with Jesus' past. Your future life is tied to Christ. And the more you know that, the more you think about that, the more you're assured of your future. The more I know this, the more praise I will give. And the more praise I give, the more God is glorified. Isn't that kind of a logical sequence here of the text? Verse 14, resurrection. Verse 15, it's all for your sakes that his grace extends more and more. People, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The more know it, the more come to faith, the more glory God gets. So we say in our church, the mission of God is the glory of God. And God is glorified by making disciples from all nations who will worship him and give him glory. So the mission of God is not to save you. That's a benefit, a side benefit of God's mission. God's mission is his own glory. He gets to seek out his own glory. We don't get to seek out that. God gets to seek out his own glory. And where you benefit is that God gets glory for himself as he seeks out and saves lost people who then give him glory. So more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of the work of Christ. Now, we need to be reminded of this, that Christ's victory is our victory. We're like, well, no, my victory is, you know, I got who I wanted elected in the last election. Or my victory is, you know, my health is awesome. Or my victory is my financial portfolio was strong. Or, you know, my victory is, you know, I have a hot wife or whatever it might be. This, these are the things we look for because the world tells us to look for those things. If you want victory, you need to go after, and it's always something temporal. It's always something made of the dust. And when we're surprised when it fails to satisfy, you know, from the time we're very small, subtly and not so subtly, we're told that the path forward is from within. The path forward is from within. Be a little smarter, get a, little better, get a few better grades, and you will succeed. Be quicker on the ice rink, and you will succeed. Build your self-esteem, and you'll succeed. I remember when I was a little guy, I used to read a lot of books, and one of the books that also was in the form of a little movie that I just thought was interesting is The Little Train That Could. Originally came out back in the 1930s. And basically, it's a self-esteem message. So the little train that could, if you've never read it or heard the story, there's a train that's putting along and the engine breaks down. And there's a tr parallel track. And down these tracks come several other engines over the course of the story. And there's the big strong one, and he doesn't have time. And there's the weak and decrepit one. They're too weak to do it. And there's this one's in too much of a hurry. And the one engine's begging other engines to take over his train so he can get up over the hill into the village. But no one will take him up on the offer. Every train's too busy, disinterested, too weak. And finally, this little train comes along, this little engine, and agrees to try to pull this heavy train up over the hill. And as he gets going, he's saying to himself, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And his wheels start to go and he pulls forward and I think I can, I think I can. And he gets up to the top of the hill 
And now he's going down, downhill and he says, I knew I could, I knew I could, I knew I could, I knew I could. And it's a story of success. The little guy accomplishes something great. And this kind of message instills within little Aaron, oh, well, if I just think I can, I will. If I just try a little harder, I'll succeed. I can overcome just by my own brute will. And then I grow up and I realize I thought I could, but I rarely do. And this is the message that often leaks out into the Christian faith too, right? Hey, you're in church. You need to do a little better, read a little more, pray a little harder. Oh, how do I do that, pastor? Just do it, man. Just schedule it. Just will yourself into it. And then you go do it because you got the pep talk and you go home and you're like, it didn't work this week. And it didn't work last week. And so you become either a fake or you pretend you got it together when you know you don't. Or you just give up. But this is because we've received false messages. That's not the message of the gospel is that, yeah, you can't do it. You can't pull the train over the hill. You can will yourself into it all you want. You will always fail to measure up to God's standards. You will always get a D. You will always fail. But instead of jumping off a bridge, you look to Jesus who died for you. And you allow his life to loom large inside of you. This is the, this is the secret to victorious Christian living. It's not a I think I can message. It's a I know Christ did message. And because I know Christ did, now he will enable me message. This is the message of the gospel. And this is why this is a good news sermon. Here's how Paul ends in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. No. Though our outer self is wasting away, it's actually getting worse. It's getting worse. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. So it's kind of like two bars in a bar chart. As one goes down, the other goes up. And if you let this one come up, then this one will go down. You have to go down for Christ to come up. You have to grow weaker for Christ to grow stronger. You have to be less impressed with yourself, less self-reliant, less convinced that you can in order for Christ to accomplish in you that which only he can do. This is the beauty of the gospel. So check this out. Here's good news. As you get older, weaker, less impressed with yourself, sicker, and more forgetful, you can get better and stronger for Christ, because all of that strength that you give away and all of the weakness that you recognize Christ is willing to compensate for with his own presence. You just need to stop getting in the way of letting Christ's power shine through you, rely upon him, trust him, give him the credit, represent him and his purposes, make his message your message his mission, your mission, his purposes, your purposes, and you will be strengthened and your life will be very radically different and others around you will be blessed as well. So praise the Lord for our weakness 
and praise the Lord for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in us.